Hello and welcome to episode three of Otmo, the podcast that seeks to explore what's on the mind of some of the most respected and admired people from the world of social good. I'm Joe Jenkins, your host for this show, and I've been really looking forward to sharing this episode with you all, as I had a fascinating conversation with the brilliant Lucy Cordicott. I first met Lucy a few years back when she was director of fundraising at the children's cancer charity, Click Sergeant. We clicked pretty quickly as we realised that we shared very similar views on what needed changing in the world at large and closer to home in the charity sector. And we've stayed in touch ever since. I love Lucy's passion, optimism and restless ambition. She's a fantastic campaigner, activist, fundraiser, thought leader and manages to be both inspiring and really accessible and fun to chat with too. Lucy is one of those people who are constantly seeking out new ways to change the world, and this is reflected in her varied career. As she shares in the episode, Lucy started out in the commercial sector, working in marketing for American Express. She soon realised this wasn't the career for her, and moved into the charity sector, working in marketing and fundraising senior roles at the Prince's Trust, Jewish Care, VSO, and then Click Sergeant. Lucy took the next step from there in executive leadership first as interim CEO for Diversity Role Models, and then chief exec for the youth leadership development organisation, Uprising. In 2018, Lucy was elected ward councillor for Stockwell in the London Borough of Lambeth, and stood for election in the 2019 general election for Labour in Dudley South. She also founded social purpose business Change Out, with the mission of diversifying the voluntary sector and making it more representative of society. When we spoke, Lucy had much to say on the state of the world right now, both the charity sector and wider society. We talked about what needs to change and why, reflecting on both the scale of the challenges we're facing in 2020, but also why we should share Lucy's natural optimism and hope. We touch on how white people should use their power and privilege, the ways Lucy has built her own personal resilience and deals with self-confidence, and whether anyone has the potential to be a great leader. All right, let's get on with it then. Here we go. Let's find out what's on the mind of Lucy Caldicott. Lucy Caldicott, what's on your mind? Well, it's been a full-on week with uh, Institute of Fundraising, now the Chartered Institute of Fundraising Convention, going virtual. And I ran a session last week, uh, just before the convention began, and then this week... I've been dipping in and out of some of the sessions and really interested in the focus that there's been on anti-racism, power and privilege, which are some of the issues that are very close to my heart. So I've been very, I suppose, very proud of the journey that the Institute has gone on, really, in the time that I've been involved. And seeing that come to life through this week has been, yeah, it's been really very, very kind of front of my mind and very interesting. And is that something that you've come to be more interested and involved in as a leader in later years, or has it always been part of your approach? I think I've always been interested in a search for justice. So I think right from my very early childhood, I was stamping my foot and saying that's not fair, but also doing demonstrations. So one of my first uh, memories of of, of a demo was what's come to be known amongst my school friends as the Great Grace protest, which um, rather signals what kind of school we were at. But we were at quite a traditional girls' school. And one one of my dearest friends is Indian. She's Hindu. And we decided that it wasn't fair that she had to say grace 
before lunch. So we, I think we had to stand up to say grace or sit down. I can't remember which way around it was, but anyway, we we didn't take part, and we were very swiftly in front of the the headmistress for that uh, that famous you know lecture. But uh, that was that's the sort of child I was, I guess, and uh, and that that sort of stayed with me. And in the end, I think has been what led me into the charity sector and then into politics. And and so so it's been, yes, part of my pathway, that that search for justice. I think as a white person growing up in the 60s, 70s, I think I have to confess that my awakening to racial justice has been a later life thing, even though one of my dearest and oldest friends is is Indian. But I think seeing the world a little bit through her eyes as a child probably helped me along that path. And how, how have you been reflecting on what that means for your role as a leader? I think what it what it's led me to do always is always reflect on my power. And I remember as a as as a leader, so a few years ago, I worked for VSO, so it would have been in the early mid two thousands, and I, I led the fundraising team there, and we were going through some change, um, an organisational review, you know, you know the drill, and uh, we'd we'd announced that we were going to share what was happening to the team on, uh, at a certain point, so. The, uh, the different uh, leads of the different teams were all going to meet with our teams pretty sort of simultaneously. And I remember being in, a, in the room with my team, who were about 35 people, something like that. And there were all these faces looking up at me. I was standing up, they were sit- sitting around this big board table and they were, they were looking up at me. And I, and I had this very strong sense of the power in my hand at that point that I was going to tell them some information that for some would be quite hard to hear, for others might be a relief. It was, you know, a very kind of emotional moment. And I, and I remember being very aware of how I delivered that information and how I engaged with them was really important. And the, and I almost felt the power. And it was a real lesson uh, and a real, a real, a, a very strong realisation that I've carried with me that as, as a leader, you do have power and how you choose to deploy it is is really important and that that has informed how I how I lead and how I how I work with people as as I've gone on. It's been one of my reflections listening to some of the points that Charity So White and others have been raising in the sector um, when thinking about what the role of white people should be in this debate and 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 focus on anti-racism that it's really important for white people not to just absence themselves from the debate but recognize that we have power and we have privilege and we should be using that power and that privilege to help help take action and make change happen but it requires us being really conscious of where and how we use that power and privilege what's been your experience of that both how you've deployed power and privilege and how you've tried to influence others I mean, I suppose in terms of racism, I say I say this quite often that you, you may have even heard me say this. I, you know, white people literally invented racism, so we literally it's on us to dismantle it. So I feel I feel that you know very clearly. And then in terms of use use of privilege or use of power, I I think that in I remember realizing in my earlier career looking at men on platforms. I used, I remember early, so Institute of Fundraising Convention this week, my, my first experience of that was in the mid-90s and it was all men, all white men on, on the platforms. 
And I remember sort of looking at those men and thinking, gosh, you know, that's interesting. You know, how do, how would I be on that platform? And and then I applied to speak at convention and I started speaking and, and I got engaged and I got to know people and I and I reflected on that process, on that ability to navigate into, into spaces of power. And so felt very strongly that I'm, I leave the door open behind me and I, in fact, help other people through because, to be honest, nobody particularly helped me. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sort of weeping about that, but 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 I had the wherewithal to, to ask the questions and, and, and navigate around. But many people maybe don't or many people don't know the pathways. And and so so I've always felt that's a power that I have. And I think one of the interesting things about that example of power is that it isn't finite. And once I've left the door open and I've brought someone else through and I've maybe seen them on their journey and they're on the stage and they're speaking, I've still got my power. You know, it hasn't gone. You know, I you know, it's not like I've given it to them and now I'm, you know. So I, I, I think that's a really interesting reflection. And in fact, I, I almost feel more powerful when I'm sharing it in that way because it sort of amplifies so, so I suppose that's the sort of approach I've taken. But I agree with your point about white people, particularly in conversations about race, being really thoughtful and humble and reflective about when we do or don't do things and what, and what things we do. Because I think, you know, there are places where we, we can, you know, help people step up or what have you. But then there are also places where, you know, quite frankly, we just need to get the hell out and not and not be there anymore. You know, I almost feel at the moment, you know, I'm, in, I'm in my early 50s and looking at the generation of young leaders coming through. It's like I'm, you know, I it's time, my time to start thinking about getting out of the way. And that is, <laughs> you know, that's cool, actually. You know, great. I can, I can do some other stuff. You know, so I, I sort of get a bit frustrated when I see people resisting that that notion of getting out of the way it's like well why are you camped out in that space you know just chill just you know go and do you know there's time to do other things and bring other people and learn from from them I don't know it's uh but it's but it, there is a thing about humility that that is super important I think in this conversation about dismantling racism yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I always think there's there's more than enough problems in the world for us all to be able to play a part. It's not like there's a there's a finite number of roles that people can play. It's just important to make sure that we're using our power where we can to amplify, but also when to create space. And sometimes creating that space is, as you, as you say, getting out of the way so that others can occupy it. What's been your journey into leadership? Because you've had a, a very varied career across quite a few different sectors. When when did you first start thinking meaningfully about yourself as a leader? Well, I remember in my very early career being very nervous of the idea of actually managing people. So I think it was later on that I managed a couple of staff. And I, and I suppose I would have been a manager, so I wouldn't have necessarily thought about that as being a leader. So I suppose as, as I began to distinguish between management as, you know, you're overseeing some other people doing things, and then this sense of actually, you know, what's a leader um, and learning about that, that difference and learning about the different styles of leadership. So I, I don't know that I set out to 
In fact, I'd probably, like, if you said to me, oh, Lucy, you're a leader, I'd probably go, no, I'm not. Um, so so that's uh, that's kind of a, something to think about. But I think there's, there is something about thinking about being in a place where you're articulating something, some belief or values in a way that that maybe some other people might want to follow, you know, to be a lead, you know, to be in the lead, there's somebody's following. And so, so I think my, my approach has ended up being, it's not about the big teams, you know, I've I've managed massive teams and, you know, that's a huge joy, you know, massive joy. I've really enjoyed it. But I think there's come a time for me where I, I've been more interested in articulation of ideas and, and trying to inspire others to think about things in different ways and, and, you know, take their own steps. So that's something I guess that's come with time um, in in the style that that I take as as a leader now. I mean, you know, I've always been very interested in this idea of good leaders know what things they're not good at. And so they bring people with them that, that help make a team. So for me, it's, it's almost the, the bringing the, you know, creating the team around me, that's you know and then the team is the thing that's the leader you know that we're we're there together and when I started out in my career uh which was in the commercial world different different environment um soon got out of that um but we I remember doing um some oh I think it was Belbin or something like that one of those you know questionnaires that you fill in and you find out who you are and what what you're like and stuff and I scored very highly as a team player like a kind of you know off the chart team player person and I remember having the feedback and it was sort of oh you know it's no good just being a team player you've got to sort of you know stick out you've got to you know take control and all this stuff it's kind of a commercial orientated thing but I do remember that and and as, as time's gone on and I, I've done those sorts of questionnaires as I've grown up and got older and more experienced you know I, I do now score quite highly in wanting to be in charge you know I want to be the boss I want to be in the lead um, but I think that that team thing from then it does stay with me in the in the style of leadership I would try to to use or be. And have you found that you've needed to apply different types of leadership in the different types of roles that you've had? And I'm thinking in particular, over the last few years, you've been a chief exec, you've been, uh, well, you you are a politician working as a councillor in Lambeth, uh, you're a consultant, um, you're uh, an influencer in the sector. Each of those is a leadership role. Do you find that you bring the same leadership approach to all of them or do you have to use different kinds of skills in uh, in those different contexts? Yeah, you really do. You have to use lots of different skills. And I don't think I'm very good at the sort of thumping on the desk, you do as I say, um, style. Um, I mean, I probably do do um, employ that occasionally with my other half, maybe. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but at work, maybe not so much. No, I definitely so there, there are the there are the kinds of styles where you have to you know sometimes you, you know you're you're leading by managing upwards you know how many times have you know I'm sure you too you know we've had to sort of try and steer a board of trustees in a certain direction so you have to kind of find different ways different ways to do that then you you know there's times when I've had to be really quite clear to people about um, you know we're taking this direction and you know, you've got choices, you know, that sort of thing. But I've always, I think it's always been very much linked to my values. So it's never been like I would use a 
you know, a, a more directive style just because, it, you know, because I was frustrated or something. It would be because we're trying, you know, we're trying to go in a certain direction or, or whatever. I think, I think as a politician, you have to, that the leadership is, is very much, I mean, I, I see myself as almost the servant of the people, you know, people voted for me and they can basically, you know, tell me what they like, you know, they can really disagree with the actions the council's taking they can really disagree with the Labour Party they can you know disagree with me personally I mean people can be quite rude and you just have to kind of take it you know um because that is I mean obviously not rude you know to a massive extent but you know people can get quite frustrated with you and you 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 sort of have to find ways not to respond you know you have to be I don't know what the word is you you have to you have to be aware of your of the role you know you are there to serve them so that is a different you know that's a bit of a different style than when you're sort of managing a team in a in an organization so so I think being adaptable is probably one of my one of my skills adaptable to other people I'm you know also seeing it from their point of view I mean one of the things that held me back from ever becoming a politician was that I felt, well, how do, how do you know what's best for other people? How do you know what's the right answer in these really complicated things? How, do you, how can you be so sure that that's the thing that you should be doing? And what I've realised is actually that's quite useful because I do genuinely listen to other people without telling them what's best for them. And, I, you know, I, I do get frustrated with the kind of politicians that opine about other people's lives when it's very clear they don't you know they've never met any of those people or they haven't got a clue what they're talking about so so I do think actually in hindsight the thing that held me back from going into politics was actually quite a quite a useful skill and um, it's definitely something I've been thinking a lot about that there's there's a sort of traditional model of what we think a leader is and actually you see that whether it's uh, in the context of a chief exec or the context of a politician uh, a sort of an old view would be that this is the person who has all the answers leads from the front um, sets out the vision and says follow me um, and is uh, and is it vulnerable is uh, is expected to carry the weight and uh, and not have any flaws and it feels that uh, that, that the leadership conversation today is is challenging that model and suggesting that actually there are different types of leadership in which you can share vulnerability. You're not expected to have the answers. In fact, the, the best leaders are the ones that uh, recognise that and and open up the space for others. And I wonder what what you've seen in terms of those kind of characterisations of leadership and how that shaped your view of what kind of leader you're trying to be. Well, I think one of the absolutely fundamental uh, parts of leadership is building trust and I, I, I think you build trust more readily if you if you're authentic and so in order to be authentic you have to be a human being and human beings are fallible so so I think what I've you know what I've always done quite instinctively is is show be open when I don't know all the answers and I want to gather in the views and then I'll weigh up the views and then I'll, you know, I'm, if I am in a leadership role, take a decision and, th- and that's where we go. And, and I, and I found that if you do that, like if you sit in a room, you know, I've been, I've been, I've had bosses who sat in rooms and then come out and told us what we're doing. And 
to me, I just don't think that that's very effective. So I've always, you know, I've almost learned more by bad bosses than I've had. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry, all my former bosses with whom I'm great <laughs> friends still. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but, you know, there's that thing where you do learn, you know, you learn as you, as you go along. And, and so, so I think that that's a, um, not being afraid to be questioning, you know, not know the answers and, and to be open when you've made mistakes or uh, show your flaws is actually a, a, a sign of great leadership. And, and some of the things that are quite frustrating in politics to me are when people have clearly made terrible decisions and they're not able to say, we got this thing wrong. It's really complicated. We got this one wrong. We're now going to change course and and take the right decision, you know, instead of just carrying on with the wrong decision. So I think that that sort of being openness about your vulnerabilities and your flaws is, a, is a, you know, a good trend if people, you know, and it hopefully makes more people be feel safe to open up to their own issues, uh, which is probably healthier for all of us. And I think that I think that the way media has evolved as well is that we now see more people have the opportunity to do things that that we think of as leaderly, you know, stand on platforms, be on, you know, be in social media, making speeches. And some of the most effective people are not the usual suspects at all. And um, so it feels like that 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 backdrop has has changed things for what we think of as leadership. How have you personally handled then sharing your vulnerabilities? Because, of course, that does then expose you um, to um, saying what the things are that that challenge you. Um, but then you're then you're very exposed. How how do you handle that? I, I suppose I, I'm fairly grounded to begin with. So if I'm then sharing something that you know where I've made a mistake or something, then then it doesn't really sort of make me feel like you know, it doesn't sort of destroy me and my confidence. It's it's just a thing that's happened. I'm trying to think of an example I could give you that would sort of sum it up. But I think because I'm I'm quite open to a to a genuine dialogue about things all the time. So then I'm always learning and I'm never, you know, I can't think of times when I'm coming out and kind of going, this is, you know, the, the thing. It's just like, we're, you know, the, the, the solution will be coming all the time through constant conversations and if people come out with different and I think I take I think I spend a lot of time listening as well before I speak and I remember in my you know in that first job I was talking about that commercial job one of my very first one-to-ones or appraisals or something like that um, my then boss said oh you really need to speak more in meetings and I, I remember because I remember going to these things called meetings you know you know I mean you must have had this you go you know like you're in your first job and you're suddenly in meetings and I just remember just seeing all these people and, and people would just say the same thing and then somebody else would pretty much say the same thing but in just slightly different words and then some other bloke usually would say something else and I'd sort of think hang on a minute what you know I don't have anything to you know the things have been said I'm not going to speak for the sake of it and um and, I, and I, I, so I, so I think my natural state of kind of doing lots of listening before coming to a view really kind of helps me gather. So then my views are sort of, ga- you know, mm. sort of gathered together in lots of other people's and I'm, I, you know, willing to be challenged. So, yeah, I'm not afraid to be challenged. Yeah. Have, have you come across Simon Sinek's, um, uh, he's did a talk about how great leaders speak last um, and the, the benefit of speaking last is, uh, firstly, you create space for others and you hear all the best ideas in the room. So the, 
you're then going to build on that rather than um, feeling that you're constantly obliged to be the person who has the answer. And I thought that's really fascinating. Uh, yeah, I think that you know that is a really a really sort of insightful thing. Plus, you you know you, you hopefully you can you can make your view land. And in a political context, people do that quite quite cleverly. So I I can name you know lots of politicians I know who will do exactly that. And at the same time, in political meetings, you have this complete people are addicted to you know having to stand up and and speak you know and 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 watching that happen and watching people basically talk nonsense about things they know nothing about is is you know a massive feature of <laughs> the political you know sort of world <laughs> i'm I'm interested in something you mentioned before about the nature of politics being more personal than perhaps uh, other leadership roles and of course you stood uh, to be a, uh, an elected uh, member of parliament in the last election which would have required you to effectively be uh, all about yourself it's it's all about the, the the Lucy Caldercott brand so I wonder how, how did you find that and how did you approach it? Well, it was a whirlwind. I was selected as a candidate on something like the 6th of November for the for the election in December. So I had, I don't know, some like just under five weeks, something like that. So I didn't have a lot of time to sort of sit and plan my campaign and, and, and think about things. So I sort of plunged in. And I just, firstly, I had to, because it was in a constituency that I didn't know very well, I had to go and meet the local party members and then just get out there and campaigning so I had to do I had to sort of dig into a lot of my experience with you know charity volunteers you know it was, it was there's quite a lot of parallels with working in charities and help, helping galvanize volunteers and get because it is you know a lot a lot of what you're doing is going out with volunteers who are helping you door knock and talk to uh, voters and things and I and I had to I had to get a lot of done a lot done in a really short space of time and I, and a lot of it was just on me. So I had to decide, you know, am I going to how much of a campaign am I really going to do? I you know it it, it never looked very likely that I'd win and I lost resoundingly. So I could have just sat around, you know, I, you know, I could have not really done too much. But I thought, well, you know, I may, may never get this opportunity again. And the local party and the local population really deserve a proper campaign and and to get to meet people who have been their candidates so so I just thought well you know nothing to lose just get out there and lead and and that you know so in a way there's there's quite a lot of leading from the front as a candidate which which you have to do you know you're the one that is on the leaflet you're the one that is standing in front of the volunteers in the pouring rain saying right you know we're going to go and knock on 50 doors each and you know you're the one that people are actually being quite rude to sometimes when you know they don't want to talk to a Labour Party candidate so so you have to find ways to be quite you have to find some pool of resilience I think which I was pleased to find I had I didn't really know I would um, but it was I, I think what I did was I tried to find a way of not taking it too personally. So trying to kind of have a little ready break force field around me, uh, but you know, between me, the real Lucy, and the Lucy that's that's like doing this role for four or five weeks, and and that really helped because uh, we did have some interesting experiences. You know, people were angry and rude, and it was cold and it was wet and it was. You know, we were we were losing. You know, it was just, you know, it was all it was all kinds of bad in many ways. But it, but I, I tell you what, I had a great time. I, you know, I'd do it again in a shot in some ways because it was really 
a real privilege. I mean, not many people get the chance to to be a parliamentary candidate and just go out there and talk to voters. And lots of people said they would vote for me. In fact, you know, something like 9,200 people did. So that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant. What, what do you think you learned about yourself through that, that process, um, both in terms of that, uh, how you build your resilience, but also uh, what, what your strengths are? I think I just do keep going. Um, and that's something I've really learned about myself, that I don't give up. Um, so if I've said I'm doing something, I'm doing it. Yeah, I just don't stop. Um, And so I have to be really careful about what the thing is that I say I'm going to do. So, you know, when I I ran, you know, I'm not a runner, but I ran the London Marathon, you know, and and I found that I was going and doing all the training and ticking off everything and, and so on. And, you know, I was, you know, fit and healthy. There's no reason why not. But, you know, there are some things where I find that I'm I'm taking on too much. So I have to be quite careful because, I'm you know, I find it really hard to, once I've started on things, to sort of stop them and, and not do them. <laughs> so, so with regard to the campaigning, you know, there were days when it was, you know, the weather was revolting and I could have just said, actually, guys, we're not going out today, you know. Um, and it was, I never did that. So I do have this sort of um, ability to kind of keep on going. But I think what I've learned is I have to make sure that firstly, I don't, yeah, don't take on too much, but also make sure I've got, um, I'm asking for help enough. I'm quite bad at that, quite bad at, you know, saying to people, actually, can you come and help? Um, and so with the, campaigning in the election I had to ask for other people to help so that really taught me not to be shy and and people did really want to help I mean people donated money to my campaign people found me volunteers to help me design my leaflets people came and campaigned with me day in day out you know it's amazing so and they didn't a lot of people didn't know me but we just we just did it you know so I'm really really proud of, of everything one of the things that I've always found when spending time with you, Lucy, is that you come across very self-confident, and and I, and I mean that with humility and generosity, and you know, not not arrogance, but 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 confidence, which is inspiring. And I wonder, do you feel that? Do you feel self-confident? Is it something that you've developed or built up over the years? No, I don't. It's funny. It's funny you say that because um, in that point I was making earlier about not being very good at asking for help. I think there is a thing for me where I do somehow give up off a, a sort of force field or something of of confidence, but inside, no, I'm not. And in fact, you know, looking back over my my life, it's something that, you know, so I, I think I, because I don't have that, I don't feel terribly confident, I've built up a bit of a veneer of you know, I'm, I am, I look confident sort of thing. So I'm always really interested by that sort of disconnect with how other, how, between how other people see me and how I'm feeling inside. And uh, because you know, I stand up and I make speeches or, you know, or sort of something like that. But I, I, you know, when I was much younger, I would, I would have been terrified to make speeches and I still feel almost quite sick you know, when I'm, <laughs> but then somehow it kind of comes out sort of thing. I don't know. But it, but I think that, you know, that is an interesting thing about if you don't feel confident inside, actually, how, how do you show that you're, you know, because I think, because in some ways, what I, what I don't want is for people to look at me and say, look at her, you know, she's amazing. She's all this and she's all that, because I don't want m- me looking like that to put them off. 
because if they're feeling you know lacking in confidence I don't want them to think oh you know she's got it all made she's all fine you know whereas actually I share with I do talk to people when I'm when people are nervous about public speaking or something I say I do feel nervous you've got to know that I've you know I might look like I'm confident but I, I do feel nervous so if you feel nervous that's fine and that's normal so I think that is quite an interesting interesting point it's one of the things I, I I think I mean I frequently have the classic kind of imposter syndrome and full of self doubts and you know wake up at four in the morning thinking oh no what am I doing and um, uh, and then find a way to kind of project that confidence when when I get out of bed and uh, and go back in, in into wherever I am but it feels like it's often difficult to talk about and. Uh, I find when I do ask people about how confident they are, frequently people say, "Actually, it's you know, it is uh, it's it's almost performative. I have to really dig deep to to do that." Um, how have you learned to be able to overcome some of that, that that doubt or lack of confidence to be able to be successful as a leader? So, one of the things I've learned, and this dates back to um, being in a Lord Mayor's parade as a charity but you know you do these interesting things when you work in charity so anyway so I was part of a troupe in the in the Lord Mayor's parade in the city of London years ago and we were choreographed and the choreographer um, said to us if you smile to the crowd they'll smile back and wave and then you'll get back that <laughs> positivity and it really sat with me that and so I started trying it when I, you know, on that Monday morning when it's the depths of winter and you've got that walk from the tube, well, not anymore because we, you know, we don't, we're not commuting anywhere. But and I, you've I, got I to go into the office. That. Yes, remember those those days, the olden days. Um, so you've got this kind of walk from, you know, getting off the tube, and you've then you've got, to, you know, like when you're the boss, you've got to walk into the office, and. If you're in a grumpy mood and you go around, you know, being in a grumpy mood, that's going to have a terrible effect on your people and you don't want to have a terrible effect on your people. So you've got to find a way of getting from where you are now in a grump into being, you know, smiley. And and so I just started practicing walking like as I would walk around this um, and I was in a job, I, you know, wasn't that happy in. And it was quite stressful, but I used to practice that whole kind of walking from the tube, right? I'm now going to like get myself into a point that the minute I walk into the office, into the open plan, I'm going to go, hello. And then, of course, there'd be a few people in there and they'd go, hello. And then you'd feel happy. They'd smile, you'd <laughs> smile. And then, you know, Monday would be done and suddenly it'd be Friday. <laughs> and it just worked. So to all listeners, try it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I really love that. And it's it's definitely one of the things that I, I, I learned belatedly as I started to take on more um, titled leadership roles, that actually your body language really matters, that people read a lot into it. And I remember I'd have people coming up going, are you okay? Is everything all right? Thinking that, oh no, is that, Joe's carrying this big secret and we're about to have a big, you know, kind of major change. And actually, no, it's just that I'd uh, I had a newborn baby and had slept terribly the night before and was just absolutely knackered. But the way I was walking around the office, my you know my shoulders were down, my head was down, and people thought there must be a real problem. And you start to appreciate that people do look for some of that visible leadership, and you have to be quite thoughtful about it. Um, so I love that. I'm definitely going to try that uh, where, yeah. if I ever return to a physical office. Somewhere. I know we can't. I, I'm sure it works on Zoom. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
how how much of leadership do you believe is is innate and how much of it is learned um so thinking about your own leadership and i'm thinking about some some of what you shared before right back at the start of your career when you were doing things like belbin and it was coming out as strong leadership skills a tendency to want to be a leader that that feels like that's something that's quite innate in you as opposed to a set of skills that you've learned but then you've also described tools that you've built up in order to be able to lead effectively how how do you find the balance? Yeah, I think um, it it's something that I guess has been. It, there is a there's that combination of what's been with me forever, and then I've learned. I've tried to learn to be good at it because it hasn't. It's not like it fit. Like I don't think I. I don't remember sort of setting out to be the leader. Like I think in my twenties, if you'd said, "Oh, you're going to be." you know, you're going to have manage these big teams, you're going to be a chief executive, you're going to be a politician. I'd have just laughed. I just, you know, there's no way I, I really saw myself as any of those things. But then as time went on, I think I did, I did look at leadership groups of uh, above me. I mean, back in, you know, my, um, my early commercial days at American Express, I'll just fess up to where I worked, given uh, where you're based. Um, so I remember going to a meeting and I think my then director was off on maternity leave or something. And so there was a gap between where I was as a sort of junior exec and the next level up that were probably vice presidents, given that we're talking about American Express. And I had to go, I'd been working on a project. I remember having to go to present this project to these, um, these people. And I was sitting in this meeting waiting for my turn to present my thing. So you can imagine the scene, you know, sort of junior exec, you know, and then sort of important people all sitting around. And I remember kind of watching them and thinking, my goodness, so this is how they make decisions, you know. And I was looking at these people and the conversations and what they were talking about. And it was an international, I think it was the international vice presidents of marketing from American Express worldwide. It was something like that, you know, something quite, you know, senior. And, and I just looked at these people and thought, but you're just... Well, you know, firstly, you're talking nonsense. You're arguing with him just for the sake of it. I could do a better job of that, you know. And I just, it really exploded that mythology for me. And so I just thought, well, I could be that. I can do a better job than that. So I think there was a thing for me about when I realised that these people are just humans and we're all humans. So there's no great sort of, you know, mystique. Um, and then you know, and as, and as I've got more senior, and I've been in more and more senior things, and I've I've navigated around, you know, senior politicians or you know other senior like PLC CEOs and all that, all the same, you know, all just humans. So, do you think anyone could be uh, a chief exec or uh, or in a senior executive role in a, an organisation? Probably, yes. And, you know, and there's some pretty woeful ones. So there's probably a lot of people who could be better ones. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't see why not, you know, because I think the circumstances, you know, for an organisation at a particular point in time, the skills are different. You know, some chief execs need to be very externally focused, navigating around, influencing, you know, others need to be very detail focused, very internally focused, so it really depends, uh, you know, on the context, what kind of leader you need. Therefore, why couldn't anybody be one? There's so much wasted talent around the place that, you know, I just think you know, that's partly why I do the work I do is, you know, I think we absolutely need to le equal the, the playing field and make it much more um, about, you know, 
open to all kinds of talent. Why do you want to be a leader yourself? What is it about leadership as opposed to the other kind of roles that you can play that is is really attractive and keeps keeps bringing you back to dif- different types of leadership positions? Um, I think I've, I've just got to a point now where I'm probably quite a difficult person to manage. So then I'm just going to fall out with my boss. <laughs> um, and it's quite nice now being my own boss. And I think because I want to make change happen, and I don't really want to have to compromise anymore. But I, you know, at the same time, I've I've had some brilliant bosses, and I, you know, I genuinely um, have learned from some really good people, and I've had you know, very good collaborative relationships with bosses. But it's probably got to the point now where I, I, I think I'm probably better off where I am. You know, it's probably just ruled out any kind of job offers. <laughs> so no, people, you can ring me in. <laughs> No, I think, but I think it is about, I want to, you know, I, I, it's, it would be hard to compromise. Like I'm currently an elected, you know, Lambeth Labour Party councillor with having to do campaigning on issues. If I was in a, in an organisation, I think that, that organisation, if it was a charity, would possibly find that a bit of a problem, you know, being, so I think it's, it's good now. What I'm doing now is, is, is a good, it's a good way of um, being able to not have to compromise on anything. I don't have to worry about tweeting. You know, I've had points in my time where people have said all those tweets and I'm just like, really, I don't want to have to do that, you know. <laughs> so at this stage of your career, where, where, where do you learn now? How, how do you, and I guess also thinking about being your own boss. So you're, um, contained in one sense which means you have to look out I guess for for some of those lessons as well as continuing to reflect on your own experience how how do you learn uh well I learn by I suppose I've I've deliberately taken steps to make my circle of friends and the books I read and the things I do very mixed um so I have a, a, a wide range of people from different backgrounds different ages that I'm talking to and listening to all the time and trying to, yeah, just kind of like really widen my frame of reference. It it is interesting at the moment because, you know, my office is probably about, I don't know, two metres square or something. So it's, you know, this tiny little room that I sort of spend quite a lot of time in. But then, you know, I do obviously have this window to the world and I can look out at podcasts and films and you know, I can read books and all those things. So that there is that. And I think, but I do, I do know that I get an awful lot of creativity from engaging with other people. So I have to make sure that I do that, that I get that. And so putting in times to talk to people like you or, you know, other, you know, just really have co- deep conversations with people. Cause that's how I, me, me talking is kind of how I think. So, so I, when I'm uh, working out what I think about things, I have to have conversations about them else I, I I'm just like a blank you know I can't I can't sort of think of anything so so I find that really interesting so sometimes if I'm writing if I want to write something about something I'll have a series of conversations about it with people to to sort of get into the into the topic so that's how I that's how I get that and it's it's quite liberating now working for myself because I can kind of do anything you know I'm really liberated to just do you know, whatever takes my fan. If I want to write a blog post about a thing, I just can. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm not having to kind of run it by the director of communications or or anything like that. Um, so it's it, that's quite uh, that's quite fun. 
It really sounds like you've found the the perfect mix for you at the moment. So you've got the, the the variety of different roles. You've got the autonomy of the different roles. You're able to play a leadership role, but not in the same constrained way as perhaps you've experienced in the past. Where, where do you want to take all of that? I don't know, really. I mean, I am, like I say, I'm in my early 50s. I'm kind of coming to the, you know, I'm in, I'm into the home stretch, sort of, it feels. <laughs> <in>. <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird way. You know, it's like, it felt like I, you know, that like you're kind of climbing up this thing and then you get there and then it's like, oh, right, now it's like home stretch. Um, but yeah, there, there's, I don't know. I mean, I probably have a million ideas a day of things I want to do next. And one of the difficulties is trying to kind of, dial that down into what's you know what's manageable um but I think I mean it'll certainly continue to in, involve um some of the themes that we've talked about in terms you know kind of helping helping other people supporting you know supporting change to happen and really like trying to make um trying to make the chat I mean you know my very first job in the charity sector I went from you know I moved from American Express into a job in a charity and I thought that a charity would be re- everybody really nice. Everybody would be everybody would be just doing good. And I, you know, I've never met such an utter bunch of I don't know if you're allowed to say rude words on your podcast, Joe, but you know, <laughs> you're welcome. And I just I'll, was, I'll do a warning. <laughs> <laughs> I was just astonished by the bad behaviour, you know. And so ever since then, I've just really wanted to make the charity sector a better place and a more authentic real place that's about social justice you know like we just feel like we've gone we've lost so much of our you know truth and so so that's really that's what I feel like my mission is to really try and point that out try and make a difference try and make you know I I feel like we're in a a poor place when it's the corporate sector that is looking at how it's going to meet the sustainable development goals. I mean, how did we get here? <laughs> I mean, I mean, good that they are, but you know, the charity should be in the forefront of that. So, yeah. So I feel like that's almost my, you know, it's like I've all of the things I've learned as I've come, you know, senior jobs in charities, gaining a bit of profile here and there, trying to kind of, you know, focus on various kind of social justice within the sector issues like really brings it all together and that feels like it's my mission for those um for those twilight years what's what's really worrying you what 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 keeps you awake at night um goodness I mean I think we're in a a dark time you know as we as we you know we're we're in a a pandemic you know it's not really a surprise I I I I, you know a part of me has been you know I've been quite interested in a way it's like oh you know sort of questioning goodness is this what being in a global pandemic feels like you know when it actually feels a bit boring you know and I mean obviously how privileged am I to uh-huh. you know but you know that kind of you know suddenly our frames of reference have really shrunk and we're not really going anywhere and we're not doing anything yet out there thousands of people are dying and it, you know people are having their lives ripped apart and it's just goodness me what a demonstration of how you know the disconnect uh, that there is in society, you know, the inequalities, it's just torn through all of the veneer we might have had about the world getting better. Um, so I, I try to, I, I'm hopeful and I'm optimistic because I am naturally that, but I do, I do feel we've got a kind of fight on our hands in, in terms of, you know, really trying to, you know, get back to a, a state of feeling like we're in progress because, you know, if we're going to be f- facing 
huge unemployment and huge poverty and you know on a on a world that was already precarious and then climate change you know there's a lot there's a lot mm. to do so I you know I don't think my twilight years are actually here yet you know it's going to be quite busy you're right you're only at the halfway mark Lucy you've still got a whole new chapter ahead but it does feel it does feel like that I mean that literally does keep me awake at night I literally wake mm. up and worry about the state of the world so yeah I just um so I'm glad, you know, in some ways it's good because I, I, you know, I can do things in Lambeth that can hopefully make things better. And, and I can do things with my charity work that can hopefully, hopefully make things better. So I do feel very motivated. But yeah, it's not, it's, it feels like a dark time. It really does. Mm. So what, what do you do when you wake up in the middle of the night and, you're, and you've got those challenges and the scale of that challenge on your mind? How, how do you process that? What do you do? Well, what I've, I'll tell you what I've stopped doing. I've stopped looking at my phone. So my <laughs> phone stays downstairs because uh, I, I, in the early days of the of you know March time, I was sort of you know waking up at four in the morning, and of course that's just the time that Donald Trump starts tweeting. So that's the worst time to start looking at, at your phone. So I've stopped doing that, and I you know I'm just reading a lot of books, and I read a lot of books about wildlife and. Uh, the country, you know, all the places that I'm not really going at the moment. So, you know, but I, I try to kind of have ways to switch off, you know, and, and kind of read things that give me some joy. So, I, you know, I'm not just lying there worrying. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what have you read recently that's really captured your imagination? Well, I'm in the middle of reading um, Girl, Woman, Other, um, which won the Booker, I think, was it last year? And and it's brilliant. And I was just I was just saying to someone, I think when I get to the end of it, I'm just going to go back to the beginning and read it again, <laughs> which I don't, I very rarely say about books. And um, and it's brilliant because some of it's sort of set in Brixton and even Stockwell gets a shout out. So I was like, yes. So, um, so I'm really, really enjoying that. So, uh, so yes, I'd recommend that. And um, I, I wonder how you sort of, compartmentalize um the different challenges that you've just uh, you you were sharing uh playing on your mind so there's uh, sort of inequality and uh, and the wider societal issues and i guess part of your role as a politician and member of the Labour party is to try to create solutions to that and then looking into the charity sector some of the uh, issues that we face here in terms of uh, whether it's the institutional racism whether it's the failure to really um, be as impactful as we need to be in the in the context we're operating in. Do do you find that you um, bring all these things together, or do you break them up into different parts? I think there's a really interesting um, kind of intersection for me because I'm always, you know, I'll you know I'll be talking about institutional racism in in the in the voluntary sector. And then I'll look over at the Labour Party and like, oh, look, the do-gooding party. What are we, you know? So it's kind of interesting how I think there's some interesting parallels about the people who think they're by default the good people. So the charity people or the Labour Party are a bit, you know, complacent when it comes to some of this stuff. So how have we got to a point where, you know, over 90 percent of charity leadership is white, you know, like 95, 96 percent? kind of levels I mean just how is that true you know I I, so I see themes that go across and and I think being able to kind of bring some of my experience from both you know into each other is is quite interesting and I try to um with with the charity sector try to kind of remind the sector that 
we we should be um you know most charities will have something about justice or words like inequality or something or respect or something in their values like if you look at most sort of mission vision values type of stuff um and yet we've got these injustices going on in the sector so i sort of try to remind people about what we're here for like why you know why why have you got this disconnect going on between what you say you're about and what's actually happening you know instances of bullying of sexual harassment of racism i mean you know and then the same with the labor party you know so look at the you know what's on my membership card of the party and then what's going on so so i think it's about really trying to help people to get back to basics a bit and and that's what i really that's where i really hope the charity sector you know i'm i'm a, I'm a bit perturbed by if i'm honest by this notion that we need to we need all this money so we can survive as a charity sector it's, i kind of yes I, you know i don't want the sector obviously to you know go out of business but i also think it needs to be building like a brand new more authentic values driven sector and and i'm not sure the two are compatible because if we carry on working in our own organizations and with these disconnects that's not the world you know that's not the world that we we need now um, you know it was never the world that we needed so we you know but we've got a chance maybe now to build a new thing so yeah that's those are the sorts of things I really think about in terms of you know and it's the same with the part Labour Party you know it's like you know we've got hopefully got a chance to build a new thing yet I keep slightly hearing that maybe you know it's like slightly like hope I'm hopeful but anyway um but you know it's it, it's about if we can kind of be a force for good, you know, the Labour Party and charities, you know, then people will want to support us. But when we're not looking like we're a force for good, then, you know, trust in charities is, is you know, on decline, as we know, and, and why it shouldn't be. What do you think we need from leaders to be able to drive the change that you're talking about? So I think we need leaders that are willing to take risks that involve maybe stepping themselves out of the way. Um, leaders that are able to collaborate because if the you know if this you know frankly if the sector's going to have less money then maybe we can have less charities and we can you know save the outcomes for the people we're here to serve rather than people going bust because they stayed and they didn't survive and then all of that got lost you know I mean what a tragedy that I mean I, I, I imagine that could be what's what's going to unfold but but that does require um trustees and senior execs to actually be you know see the bigger picture and see the bigger picture for their you know whoever it is that they're there to help and and who who they're for and make that the most important thing rather than you know their status as a as a as, a, as an organization and i you know i've seen you know i've been party to conversations where people have simply not wanted to engage in talk that might mean that they're their status um, would be, a, you know, potentially at risk. And I just think that's not good enough. Where will you be putting your efforts then in the year ahead, do you think? So I'm, um, I'm trying to write more stuff, saying some of those things, um, if people will listen. And I am doing work with organisations on equality and diversity and inclusion in, in their, in their organisation. So I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm sort of, 
but I, I cite that work very much within a, a thing of navigating an organization to an organization that's fit for the 21st century. So it's, you know, it's going to encompass some of those conversations about what, you know, what are your, what's your purpose? What are you here for? And how do you, how do you build the organization that's, that's ready to do that work? Um, so, so that's, that's sort of what I'm focusing on at the moment. Yeah. Well, let, let me ask you, you uh, said earlier on that you're, you're an optimistic and, and hopeful person. G- given everything that's going on, what, what gives you the greatest cause for hope? Well, I think that the, the moment that we're in, dark as it is, is so desperate uh, that it has, I think it has really shaken people and it has meant that people are alive to the need for change in a way that I don't think, I don't think I've seen before. I mean, that you know, we've had, we've had times in the past where people have uncovered injustices within charities or, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement in the early 2010s, you know, so that, you know, that was then, but it felt like then it went away again. This time it feels like people are wanting to engage in a way. And, and I, do, I don't just say that me as a white person, I say, you know, talking to friends, um, black and South Asian friends, particularly who say, no, we feel that too. You know, we feel that there's more, there's more openness to change. So I think that it's, one of the things that we must must do is make sure that that doesn't get let off the hook, that, you know, we carry on, that we don't allow ourselves to kind of think, oh, well, we, you know, we did a bit of thing and then it got a bit hard and so we, we stopped. It's, you know, we've got to now start to make some really proper shifts. There we go. That was episode three of Otmo. I loved catching up with Lucy. She warned me before we started that we could easily end up with a six-hour conversation and I certainly could have carried on listening to her for much longer. She just bubbles with energy, ideas and passion and I always feel more motivated to step up and lead better after speaking with her. You can follow Lucy at Lucy Caldercott on the Twitter and also look out for her on Facebook. Along with Leslie Pinder, she founded the excellent fundraising chat where over 10,000 fundraisers regularly meet and share their experiences. I'd also recommend visiting Lucy's website, changeout.org, where you can sign up to her newsletter, which is always packed full of great reflections. So big thank you to Lucy for making time for us on this episode. And as always, huge thanks to my podcast and brand manager, Katie Clark, as well as to Mark Hatter for audio editing and composing the show's music. You both rock. And thanks to you, dear listener. If you want to keep regularly updated, you can subscribe at our website on themindof.com and sign up for regular downloads through iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you usually get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, follow the On The Mind Of Pod on Twitter, or me at Mr. Joe Jenkins. And if you are able to share the podcast and rate it too, that will help us reach a few more people and give us encouragement to make a few more shows. Until next time, thanks for listening to Opmo the podcast that explores what's on the mind of leaders who are seeking to change the world.